Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Evolution Podcast, where we question what makes our life truly ours. I'm Shereen Jaffer, and I'm very excited to introduce you to some incredible people with fascinating stories. I've got Deborah Benton here with me, who I've had the pleasure of talking to just a couple of times. Um, But every time we've talked, Deborah, we've just been able to go deep and have some really meaningful conversations. So good to have you here. Thank you so much. It is so good um, to be here. And I know we have only met somewhat recently, but truth be told, I feel like I've known you a lot longer. (laughs) (laughs) The feeling is mutual. Part of which, because, you know, again, we've been able to just dig deep in a lot of, uh, in a lot of questions that we're both passionate about. Um, one of them being, you know, what, what does it mean to live a quote unquote successful life in our society? And, um, you know, how do we define that for ourselves and what are the influences we have from an early age that frame a lot of our own definitions? So, I would love to just talk a little bit about your childhood, um, you know, how you grew up. Tell us oh, more about I that. I love it. And yes, these are, um, yeah, I'm really eager to get into this because I think that those paradigms that we grow up with um, set us up for life, for good or bad, um, to, you know, how we define success and more importantly, what I think mistakenly, how success is defined for it's- us this delta between what society and others' expectations of us are and what we really feel they should be for ourselves. And I think it's until we get to that point throughout life, um, we don't really start, I think, achieving, and I use that word achieving in a broad sense, what whatever is really important to us. Um, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So let me uh, <laughs> let me take a, a step back. Uh, I was um, actually born in Africa in a country called Malawi. My parents are both British. And at the time, they were both teachers um, in, in Malawi. Uh, we weren't there for very long because there was a lot of political unrest that was going on. Uh, and so when I was very young, we moved to Canada. Canada is where I grew up um, for um, all of my childhood. Uh, and went to undergrad and grad school and didn't leave Canada until I was in my mid-20s after business school, and I I came to the States after that. Um, But, you know, I would say when I look back um, on how, um, you know, how it kind of set up my relationship of of how how I define success or really how it was was defined for me – I came from, um, both my parents who are British came from very, very uh, poor working class families um, who really never had enough, uh, down to not even enough food. And so uh, my parents' definition of success, a lot of it was stability, 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 stability. Um, And they both ended up being teachers and then school principals and then eventually um, administrators in the education system, but very much defined around stability. And so I didn't really know the business world, um, which is what I'm in right now, until much later. Um, And, you know, with stability, by the way, comes with things like not questioning and doing the safe thing and Certainly the prospect of ever, ever getting fired was mortifying. You know, that could definitely never happen. So then, you know, so right from the very beginning, you're very much set into play the game and play the rules and, and you're essentially gamifying the, the, the situation from early on. 
Um, but uh, I did an undergrad. I was going to be a doctor and I hated organic chemistry. So that kind of went out the window in second year or third year. Um, I ended up graduating with a, a health um, degree and went almost immediately into business. I became a controller for a large um, restaurant franchised restaurant organization. Uh, and I really liked business. Um, who knew? Uh, I had really no idea, but I re- had always been very good at numbers. Um, really liked, um, I just really liked all aspects of business. It made sense to me. It was actually quite rational. Um, so I went back to business school and did an MBA. And as soon as I finished my MBA, I went to Toronto and worked for a few months, um, but quickly realized that I actually had a lot more appetite for risk um, than I had earlier anticipated and probably much to my parents' chagrin. Um, and I left. I left after a few months and simply drove to San Francisco Um uh, I don't even know why. I think it's be. I had this. I well, first of all, I should say I w- went with my boyfriend of many years at the time. He was a coder, and so it was. You know, oh, I think that there's jobs out there. <laughs> like I think there's. <laughs> I think there's a place called Silicon Valley. Actually, I don't even know if we knew at the time that Silicon Valley was right there. I, I think we found that kind of on our journey over. Um, but yeah, that was a pivotal moment because I uh, actually quit. A very, very, as soon as I came out of um, business school, I received a, a, you know, what would have been definitely uh, determined to be a very successful job with a wonderful paycheck at a great firm. And 12 weeks later, uh, when I literally was getting physically sick because I hated it so much, and I had to tell my dad that I was going to quit this incredible job. Uh, that was a really pivotal moment for me in my life. Um, I'm not really quite sure where I got the courage to do it. Probably desperation. Uh, you know, desperation is often kind of the mother of innovation. So maybe that's what it was. Um, but that was um, that taught me a lot um, at that point. I didn't know it at the time, um, but literally quit that job and packed the car and rented out my house, and we drove to San Francisco, li- living off my credit card with um, no job. Um, frankly, we weren't even legally here. Um, but it was an inc- it was the late 90s and it was an incredible, incredible time um, of opportunity. And so um, we both within a couple of weeks found actually extraordinary jobs, really amazing opportunities for both of us. And um, that's that's how I got to California. And that was 22 years ago. So yeah. quite a while. It's been a run. <laughs> I, you know, thank you for sharing that story. I think it is so interesting because you mentioned stability multiple times, how, you know, we have, we have been uh, taught to chase the sense of stability. Oh, and i as I see, you know, essentially what we're chasing to get to that stability, uh, you know, the stable job, this uh, nine to five, this uh, lack of asking questions and doing things as they've always been done, because if it's worked before, it can work again, mm-hmm. right? That's really the mentality. And so why, why reinvent the wheel? Let's just keep doing things that have seemed to work out for other people. And it really comes usually to a point of, some sort of health concern, some sort of mental health concern, some sort of major life event where you realize you're in a place now that if you continue to, if you continue to keep going in that same way, it's not going to end up well yeah. for you. 
And that sense of stability is no longer there, um, even though you are doing exactly what you were told to do, but somehow it's not working for you and your unique situation. And I think oftentimes people that I talk to now that are in that, at that point, they believe it's a, it's a personal problem. They yeah. believe it's not working yep. because it's a them issue and not anything else. So would love to know when you did come to that realization, uh, sort of what that transition was like for you. What was that process like for you? Yeah, I mean the, the I mean this is just a great conversation and I I I think the sooner everybody has this even with themselves um the better that it is. I, I think what's happening you're absolutely right when people are are experiencing and they may experience it in different ways. Uh, you know, in various times in my life it has gotten so bad for me that it has manifested itself in, in, you know, a cold that wouldn't go away for three months. That's what happens. I think when we, when we deny, um, you know, what we know ourselves, what we authentically know ourselves and we try to live the life that is otherwise dictated to us or otherwise determined that that's the life we should be living. When you don't, when you're, when you're not leading this, you know, as authentic life as you can, um, that's when I think you get into trouble. And it's, and it's, it's this cognitive dissonance because we don't give ourselves enough credit for actually having this sense of intuition or this understanding of ourselves. And we try to outthink ourselves. And when we do that, you know, when we use our brain and we don't use these other senses that we have. Um, well, it's interesting. Yeah, I could not agree more because it's so funny. I was talking to someone else about this, another guest, um, about how we put such an emphasis on just thinking logically and looking at the facts. And, you know, it, it, for example, even the concept of manifestation, the concept mm-hmm. of gut instinct, mm-hmm. all these concepts, you know, are a lot of people say, well, if, if it's not backed by science, it must not exist. And I'm reading this fascinating book right now that actually discusses science and where and how research is actually done and the origins of knowledge. And it's called The Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby. And he's an anthropologist and uh, just kind of looks into uh, the indigenous uh, cultures and traditions and how they get their knowledge despite not having access to science and research and the same type of processes that we have here in the Western world. Um, and he talks a lot about uh, in his in his very scientific approach, he goes deeper into questioning, well, where did we come up with a lot of the theories that we have today? Yeah. Uh, theories that we consider factual. Um, you know, why have they become so largely accepted when they don't actually have um, any sort of uh, like convincing evidence mm-hmm. um, to show that they're more than just you mm-hmm. know theories. And it goes back to kind of this mindset we have with ourselves now, where we we do undermine our own um, ability Absolutely. to think um, constantly, questioning ourselves, but we're not questioning the opinions and the external knowledge, which is so interesting to me. But think about (laughs) it. Think about how we're indoctrinated at a very, very young age to be submissive to, to authority, right? So we go to school and this is, that's a whole other podcast that at some point we should have around education and, and, you know, my thinking of, of the failures of the current educational system, but we go to school at a very, very young age, um, even preschool at this point, and we are told to behave and we're told that a certain set of 
behaviors is acceptable and rewarded. And we're told how to think. We really are told how to think. And what's even worse is um, we're told how to think. And in fact, I would, in a very cynical way, argue that we are told not to think. And we are rewarded not to think. We are rewarded for um, regurgitation. We're rewarded. For, I have two boys and, you know, boys just tend to be a little more kinetic. And, you know, I'm getting feedback from my 12 year old's teacher all the time, how chatty he is and he wants to talk and he wants to discuss. And I'm like, I don't know where the problem is there. Like, what? what? So it's, you know, it's. I love that you said that because one of the things that I've been talking a lot about with friends that, and I can't wait until you and I talk about this further, but, you know, friends that are just, uh, that have been in education or have just been very passionate about looking at our education system and thinking about what's working, what's not working. And one of the things we talk about a lot is this classroom model of, you know, having 20 to 40 kids in a class with one teacher and you have, you have to just teach, right? And and I used to, similar to your son, my teachers would always say, you know, Shireen will finish her work and then distract everybody yep. else. And she's out and there's too many questions being asked. <laughs> and and uh, you know, my mom fortunately, uh, love her, she um has a psychiatry background. She's a nurse. And, you know, she from a young age kind of just put this in my head of you can never have too many questions yeah. as long as you're willing to find the answers. Mm-hmm. And that to me was so important in hindsight because school did taught me the opposite of that. It was so much of, you know, there are good questions and bad questions. Yeah. And this is how you ask the questions and this is how you frame your hypothesis. And uh, my friends and I always talk about, you know, if if a teacher or if if the classroom is not working, how could you blame one kid and not in the underlying, you know, way of how we put people in a classroom that have very different learning styles and very different starting, you know, places mm-hmm. and very different home environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was encouraging my questioning. Of so of course I was going to continue being in that class doing that. Um, versus there were kids in my other class that had different styles of parenting. Not, nothing is, you know, nothing is as simple as right or wrong, but just different. No, it's, it's so true that, you know, um, I come from a family of teachers. I have the utmost respect for teachers. I think it's a really challenging, really challenging, um, career and one that's incredibly important. But if you think about what what like what are we asking, especially now with a lot of overcrowding in in kids' schools? You're poured, putting thirty or forty kids that, as you just explained, on so many variables are so different. The best that they can do is try to teach to either the average or to the lower common denominator, right? Because they're they're trying to they're trying to manage a class. They're trying to keep. Uh, 30 to 40 children, um, you know, uh, under control. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but you, you, you can't have utter chaos, right? They're, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to keep these kids safe and pr- provide some sort of productive time for them. Um, and so we are, I think the whole way that we think about structuring classroom and even who we put together to learn together, it's so crazy. We put everybody together just because they're the same age. 
who cares? You know, I mean, there's so many other ways, you know, what is your primary or preferred way to learn? Uh, Is it, you know, kinetic and and interacting and doing, or is it auditory or is it reading or is it computer or is it whatever it might be, you know? So we're, we're asking an an awful lot of teachers. And I think often we're we're really setting them up uh, to fail, uh, which is terrible, which is really terrible. I also, I, I agree. I also think there's so much pressure put on teachers uh, to know all of the answers oh, yeah. when really the, you know, the magic happens. Some of the best teachers I remember are the ones that made learning so fun totally. and made learning interactive and gave us the environment, the, to just play and to question and be and curious, and, right? What is learning except about being curious? And I think Absolutely. just like, just what you experienced, I think because curiosity um, requires energy to respond to properly. And often these teachers either don't have the time or energy, they shut the kids down. If that's not the beginning of the end of you know, (laughs) teaching a kid that they should be rewarded for this, that they should question, 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 question. Like that's, it's iterative, right? That's how we learn. That's how we all learn. That's still how I learn today. Um, But we are, we are undermining kids right from the very beginning, right from the very beginning and teaching them just not to think. Um, And I think what, what, what happens and what subsequently happened to me was, uh, I played the game very well. I did very well in school. I, I knew how to test take. You know, I was, I had it pretty easy and I, I figured out that game pretty early on. Um, and then by the, t- but, but what I didn't really build in many ways was confidence in my ability to problem solve. I had confidence in my ability to regurgitate. I had confidence in my ability to get good grades because I kind of figured out what the patterns were and what I needed to do. But in a real life situation, I undermined myself. I had no confidence. And so in many ways, that that certainly propelled me to continue living this life that I was getting externally validated for, you know, this good job, this, this amount of money, you know, this many holidays, like whatever the criteria was, um, which was, and, and so that, that itself provided a fair bit of dissonance because on the one hand, I was really quite unhappy. And this was my job right out, right out, out of, after business school, I was super, super unhappy and it was not rewarding. And I didn't respect the people that I was with and I didn't like what I was doing. And yet I had society telling me, wow, you, you know, you're so successful. Like you're, you're in your mid twenties and you know, you've got this degree and you're now you're working at this consulting firm and you know, and so it, all of a sudden you're like, why am I feeling this way? Because everybody else is telling me how great it is. Um, there must be something wrong with me. And I think that that was the first time up until that point, think about it, where as children, we always have the next milestone, next milestone, next milestone. So you're always, you know, I knew I was going to go and do an undergrad. I even knew I was going to do some graduate degree. So I, it was always forward, like, what's the next thing? And then all of a sudden you're in real life and you're like, I don't know, you know, is, is this it? I think that to go back to your earlier question, that was probably my first point of like, oh my goodness, I've been working my whole life doing the right thing. And this is it. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Right. I, and that, that question of, is, is this it? What else is out there? Am I even, am I even enjoying what people are telling me I should be enjoying? And 
you know, of course you're not alone in feeling this way. We know that. I was just speaking to um, a, a female founder just a couple months ago. And she is, I believe she's probably in her late 30s, early 40s. She has a couple kids. Um, and on paper, she just tells me, she says, Shereen, on paper, you look at my LinkedIn. I went to this, you know, great quote unquote top college. I joined wealth management right after. Then I was a consultant at one of the, you know, top consulting companies. Then I went and worked at Wells Fargo and uh, American Express. And I have all these brand names. And then I even started working at startups that went on to raise a ton of funding and, you know, got to work directly with our VCs. And so again, on paper, she looks great. And then she looks at me and she says, and I don't know how I got here. (laughs) And I'm waking up for the first time and realizing I did everything to look great on paper. And I thought I was enjoying it, but I can genuinely sit here right now and tell you that I feel like I was sleeping for the past 15 years. And what's waking me up is having my first kid go into, uh, it was her, her kid who's uh, three years old, just started school Mm -hmm. and, and she's hearing feedback from the teachers and it's making her reflect on what she's teaching. Right. And she realizes there's so much dissonance between what she's being told to teach her kid versus what she thinks the kid should know. Uh, And she's realizing, wow, her dissonance comes from her own misalignment with how she's chosen to live her life versus how she wants to. Yeah, I think my guess is um, we all, to some extent, experience this. I probably have a personal theory that there's some gender differences there as well. Um, But I can say for me, it was... It was a huge struggle. And by the way, you know, I hate to always paint these these paradigms as kind of like the before and after pictures. This is this is a struggle every day for me. And it continues to be a struggle every single day. This is an evolution. Right. There's no start or finish. There is it's a it's constantly change. And I find myself I think the difference, though, today is I have at least a little bit of awareness that I can call myself on it, that I can finally start to say, oh, um, you might be feeling this way because, oh, it's really not your path or you really don't believe in it. And you're only saying or doing this because you think that there's some sort of weird external validation that you're going to receive. But don't you remember how you know unrewarding that fundamentally is and how it's kind of meaningless? Um, but it's, it's, I struggle with this every day. I, I, I still do. And it's not just around, um, the professional realm. It's also the personal realm. It's also the personal realm. Yeah. How we think, how we react. I mean, I, 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 every single day I encounter something that I used to believe with such deep conviction, Deborah. Mm. And now I read it or I hear someone else say it, or I just encounter encounter in some capacity. And I realize I don't believe that anymore. And I think back to all the conversations I've had in the past where I've argued with people and said, you know, no, they're wrong. This is right. And now I feel bad. And I also, you know, that brought up something so important to me is recognizing our in, in our world today, I think we've kind of reduced discussions to just being uh, mutually exclusive. There's a right and a wrong totally. when that's often not the case. And 
Again, there's so many perspectives, different things work for different people. You can believe things, but as long as you're open 100%. to experience that belief, yeah. uh, I, that is really where magic can happen. I could not agree with you more. In fact, I would say that what has been most disappointing to me, um, it, it, I would say over the last three or four years with the political situation, uh, what has been most disappointing is how shut down people have been on either side of the spectrum. I, I, I think everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I really do. And and I will listen to anybody. I'll have my own opinions and I'll probably put up a really good argument and what have you. But it has. But we grow through experiencing other people's discussion and points of view and perspectives, you know, that it, it is iterative, um, even if it's to the point, even if it really just points out what you really don't believe in, that's okay too. Um, but completely closing down and not listening to each other um, and not having respect for an individual's right to have whatever opinion that they have, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. That's fine. But that has been really disappointing for me. I think, um, in many ways. And, and I'm, uh, you know, I, I come from Canada. I'm, um, I, I probably am heavily influenced from the fact that I come from Canada and what have you. Uh, but I am, I hope we get over that. I hope we go back to, because I think discourse and conflict, by the way, can be very healthy um, and can, can help all sides if you kind of frame it, reframe it in a way of, um, you know, why do you have a different perspective and, and how do I think about my opinion in context of that perspective? We don't have, exactly. we just don't have that um, now. And that is, I think that's hurting us. Right. I think it hurts this notion of lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. um, we hear that being thrown around all the time, but the way our education system is set up and then the way we talk about education as a society, we reduce it down to graduation degrees, oh, right? My and those people will go through again, K through 12, right? That's this like mandated requirement. And then some will go to college and then they have what, four to five more years. And then what? Yep. Then it comes down to, well, on the job you learn, but that doesn't make any sense because if let's say you're part of, you know, the unfortunate amount of layoffs that are mm -hmm. happening logically, what does that mean? Does your learning stop? Absolutely not. Yeah. So it, it, you know, being part of discussions and being open-minded and being open to expanding your beliefs and iterating on them, that goes back to really creating an environment for yourself where you can be a lifelong learner. And I actually just pulled up this Maya Angela quote that I had come across uh, a few days ago, and she essentially says something along the lines of, you know, do the best, or she's, you know, she said to have said this, do the best you can until you know better. <laughs> then when you know better, do better. <laughs> great. Um, yeah. And anyone that doesn't believe or subscribe to the importance of lifelong learning, however you choose to go about it, it just, again, going back to the basics of the world is changing all the time, which means your knowledge at any given point is becoming even more out For sure. Um, so how can you do better and be better and feel better, however you define that for yourself, if you're not constantly learning and honestly, even more importantly, unlearning mm -hmm. a lot of the things you were told were true, but after having practiced them, they seem to not be working out for you. That is such an important trigger yep. of just really 
realizing, oh, this just doesn't work. It might be true for other people. That's okay, but it doesn't work for me. So let me unlearn it and relearn. Yeah. It's hard though. It's hard. Like I would say, you know, those, those, uh, the, the strength of which we are indoctrinated at, at a very, very young age. And that's why, you know, when you ask the question, you know, w- when did this occur to you? It, 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 I literally every day try to go through, I, I have to question myself because those, those, that narrative is very, very, very powerful and it's deeply set in. Um, and you also have to get to a point I think where you have the confidence to allow yourself to question it and to come away from it. And that does take confidence. And sometimes that, you know, I think it can come around in times of desperation or trauma or really bad experience. Um, It doesn't have to. I I think just this, this constant feeling of unsettled within yourself can, can drive it over a period of time. But one of my fears with, and this goes back to the education system and, and kind of this very powerful narrative that we do, you know, project onto our kids um, is, you know, we are, to- we are told what the right things are. We are told, we almost live in fear. I lived in fear of making a wrong decision. That's how powerful it was. I, I, would, I grappled with making decisions, you know, sometimes for days, weeks, months, simply because I was so scared to fail. When did that happen? right? Like, why, why is it? Why is it so bad to fail? My best lessons in life, my best growth, personal, professional growth has absolutely come out of failure. No questions asked, like no questions. I've done some right things. I've done some, you know, things that have been successful, wonderful. My best lessons, my best growth has come out of failure. So why are we, why do we teach our kids that it's so bad to fail? And that, Fear of failure. Fear of failure is just going to make them not take chances. And that was me for them for much of my life, much of my life. Right. And it goes back to how we're graded, right? All throughout totally. school. I mean, totally. literally pass or fail at the most basic, uh, you know, uh, level so of it. So crazy. It's- like, it's so crazy when you really think about it. What are we really telling our kids? Right. What are we, we're rewarding them for, you know, simply responding in a way that we've trained them to say that this is a good way to respond rather than really thinking some things through um, and really questioning it and thinking for themselves. And what is wrong or right? You know, I look, I'm, I'm not complete, complete ideologue. I know that there's there's certain toolkits that we want to provide people, whether it's, you know, learning how to structure a sentence or, you know, basic mathematical equations you know there are there are certain well it's the, it's the three r's right that education talks about reading writing and arithmetic mm-hmm. and if you have those three things you kind of have that foundational layer of being able to communicate of being able to understand and of being able to do basic math and calculations yes yes yeah exactly and then but beyond that i'm look it's been a long time since i've been in elementary school but i certainly was not taught how to problem solve creatively i right. absolutely mm-hmm. was not Um, And that took a long, long time. And I'm still, oh, I wish I was a lot better. And I, and I'm, if to be better, I would have to be super comfortable at questioning established paradigms. Um, And I'm, I, I struggle with that. You know, I still go back to, oh, well, this is how it's been successful before. And this is what we've seen before, rather than thinking about, we're living in a very rapidly evolving environment and community and world. And, 
Um, and we should be evolving our thinking around that. Not that you can't use the past as a data point and as a, as a reference point, but um, just getting comfort and confidence around questioning establishment. Um, we're not super good at that and we don't teach our kids to be good at that. Right. And going back to, you know, all of this, obviously this transition, this process of questioning and unlearning, it is, it is very difficult. And, you know, part of the intention behind this podcast was to bring people like yourself in light that have gone through the journeys are constantly going through the journeys. Um, and hopefully create a community that recognizes you're not doing it alone. I mean, millions of people um, are going through this journey ever, every day. Um, however, because it unfortunately is still not the norm, um, it's seen as, you know, the rebellion yes. in some way. Yeah. It's not well supported. It's not well uh, shared. Um, but I think that's being changed now with these casual learning approaches through podcasts and, you know, other things. Yeah, look, I think you usually have to follow the, like, who's going to benefit, where's the money, who's going to get more power from these paradigms, you can usually trace it back to, to those few questions, right? If, um, you know, sometimes when you when you see some things happening, you know, my first reaction, again, a little bit cynical is, who's making money here? Because then that will help me understand what why this is happening. Um, exactly. One of the things... We actually... I was going to say, we actually just riffing off of that, we actually broke down, for example, the food pyramid, which impacts every <laughs> single person's life yes. because one, it was taught in the schools yes. and two, a lot of nutrition programs, at least the traditional ones, uh, refer to it. But if you follow the money uh, in the way you just said, Deborah, because I couldn't agree more with it, you realize, well, the the food pyramid was released in 1992, but the people that were pulled into creating it, um, the agriculture and the food industries, they're they are incentivized by people eating more grains. They are incentivized totally. um, by people eating more of the foods that they emphasize towards the bottom, the larger portion yeah. of things you should eat. Yeah. And in the research, it was cool, really cool, but also unfortunate to see that nutritionists and health experts were pulled in and they actually made recommendations that, for example, I, you know, don't quote me on this, but if you look into the research or go to Edvo's Twitter, we put out an entire infographic on this. Um, you, you realize, you know, let's say the health expert said you need three to four cups of X, but then the food pyramid said, actually it could be, you know, four to nine. <laughs> right. Because we want we don't want people to stop their spending. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 fascinating how much you can learn by simply digging deeper, which yes, it takes more time and uh, it does take a level of an investment on an individual basis that a lot of us uh, aren't making the time to do because of the ways, you know. Well, we're, we're, we are, we are we're not rewarded <laughs> for it, right? We're really right. not rewarded for being intellectually curious. We're not. We're told, like, starting very young, exactly how you experienced it, you know, like, oh, Shireen's talking so much, or she's chatty, or she's disturbing people. Well, perhaps because you're bored, right? Because perhaps because you're not being challenged, right? Perhaps if you just were, had been let, you know, loose to go and figure out what you wanted to learn, you probably would have done a very good job keeping yourself busy. Um, so we are, you know, we as a society, we are not taught to challenge authority. We're not rewarded for that. And not even challenge in a bad way. Just question. 
just just question question why why like why 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 um yeah and going back to I think also the role of you know teachers and educators all different types of educators one of the roles is facilitating that culture like we talked about that environment so you know when someone does ask why does it exist you shouldn't feel the pressure to know the exactly Uh, yeah simply you know what? I don't know. So let's figure it out together. Or frankly, here are ways you can figure it and out. And come back and Just tell us, us, you know, like come back and share with the class what you find out. Sure. Yeah. Right. And if, if obviously teachers have so much responsibility right now and, um, you know, they're, they're definitely poorly compensated for it. So if they aren't able to do it again, just encouraging that line of exploration yeah, um, I agree. among all of us is so is priceless because yeah. that process can be repeated multiple times towards any concept that you're questioning. Yeah, I think there's also, you know, I, I'm, this is making me reflect so much on on my own kind of early education. I think there's also just like we we downplay and in fact um, punish kids for ostensibly failing, however we define that, we do the same if they're wrong, if they answer a wrong question, which is so crazy when you really question that, right? Like when you really think about it, like we're, we're trying to encourage discussion and exploration and discovery and self-sufficiency in our our learning process, right? Like, you know, encouraging self-direction, I think is really a healthy way to think about it. And yet when we ask questions and kids put up their hands, whatever that, you know, whatever the behavior is these days, and they're wrong, there's a negative experience with that, which, why aren't we reframing that? Why is that a negative? Why do we, why are we telling kids that that's negative or bad? Well, it goes back to the underlying intentions, right? You said self-discovery and self-learning, if that's what we want to do, but the reality is that is not what the education system wants to do. Oh, no, I know. And you know this, the education system absolutely wants you to learn what they've deemed as important for us to thrive as adults. And uh, even though an overwhelming amount of data shows that we are not actually graduating people with the skills and the knowledge they need to thrive. Um, so many, you know, kids are graduating today without even a basic understanding of technology. Right. I was, my past company, Skillify, I believe I shared this story with you, but um I, you know, I was working in high schools in Oakland and Skillify would go into these schools and we would implement curriculum that would help kids explore their interests, learn how to network, meet mentors, do internships so that they can explore and validate their interests before graduating. However, in order to do that, they obviously needed to be able to use email so they can get in touch with mentors. They needed to be able to do Google searches so they can, uh, you know, research the different career paths that they're considering. They need to have those basic technology skills. Now I'm going into these high schools in uh, Oakland and these schools uh, are what, 30 minutes away from San Francisco, the capital of tech. And these kids look at me and they ask me things like, well, what's a URL? And how do I literally, if I were, I gave, I remember this moment so clearly, I gave them a website to go to. And instead of knowing to put that URL into their browser, they all did a Google search and they put in the website link and it didn't pop up. 
And they were confused because they didn't know the difference between using Google or the fact that they were even defaulting to using Google. Wow. Think about that for a minute. They, the, they didn't know they were defaulting yeah, that's crazy. to using Google. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And yet these kids are expected to be in classes like AP biology and AP computer science. And well, ComSci would be different because it would teach them things, but AP biology and AP English and AP US history, where they learn how to, you know, think through concepts and articulate, articulate them in these essays. However, they don't have basic technology. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. I'm involved with, um, so my older son is at uh, is at a, a liberal arts college in uh, New York. It's a college called Colgate, and he is. And I was thrilled that he made the decision to to go to this. A, I really like the smaller class sizes, but also it's not nearly as uh, prescriptive. I would say in um, you know you have to take this, you have to take this, and you know he's taken me through the courses that he's taking this year, and honestly, I'm super jealous. I wish I was taking them. You know, it's courses like challenges of modernity, um, you know, legacies of the ancient world, things that I think are actually quite fascinating, and I certainly never never um, had access to. Um, but you know, even even you know, this is this is one one way you can go for an education. But even there, you know, he's going to come out with um, you know, I I hope in ways he'll grow and develop as as a as a you know um, a person much more than just academically. I'd argue that the academics are almost a, a byproduct in in many ways, um, but you know, he's going to have to learn all of his technical skills and uh, real data analysis skills outside of this education, you know, he, he, because he will not have access to, to learn that there. And they have, um, I'm very uh, much involved as you guys are with the early stage world. And I keep thinking, where, why are we not better preparing uh, folks coming out of whatever, whatever they choose to do. It could be a trade school. It, it could be a university. It could be, you know, a variety of different things. But why are we not training them with more practical level skills? You know, just just arming them with a toolbox to be able to um, go into today's work environment, whatever work means to them, however it means to them, um, better prepared. And we're not. I mean, we're definitely not. They're expected to get all of this kind of on-the-job training, which seems to be kind of crazy to me. Right, right. And it's it's non-existent in many, in many places. And then, you know, people are unfortunately um, blamed as as not being educated enough or not being ready enough for those roles or being underqualified, right? Yeah. Which makes no sense because there's a huge gap between, you know, they were told you go to school, you learn what you need to do. And then as long as you put in the effort and you apply those skills, you'll get a job. Right. That framework doesn't even work. No. Uh, yet we're still blaming, you know, the, the, the people, the adults, the kids, whoever, uh, as not being smart enough or not working hard enough. Um, and that just is not. No, true. it's crazy. And I, I think with, with my kids, what I'm, what I got to the point because I I did everything the old school way that honestly did not work. It was it it was the wrong way, and you know, and I don't want my kids to go through that. If if there's anything that I really want to instill in them, it's that the responsibility for their continuous learning lies with themselves. 
it's not anybody else's responsibility, right? Like we can, we as parents will support it. And, and I'm a, I'm a, you know, encourage them as much as I possible, like figure out what your passion is, what you love, you know, just keep learning, questioning what, what, whatever it might be. But ultimately, even as your parent, it's not my responsibility. You know, it, it really is up to you. And so figure it out. Like go out there and figure it out. If you need to go and figure out the best online courses or local community courses that are going to give you, you know, the actual tactical and, and practical skills that you need, then you need to do that because it's nobody else's responsibility. I do. I will. I, I not to interrupt. No, no, sorry, please. Deborah, I was, I was going to say, I also think it's so much more than, um, learning about topics, right? I think that's the other problem that we have with our, um, or just another problem that we have with our education system is it's the reliance on topics. You Mm -hmm. master this topic, Mm -hmm. you get deep into it, you're done, you move on to the next one. And so you see people going into online courses, for example, that care deeply about lifelong learning. uh, But then they're like, okay, well, what can I learn today? Right? And they focus on the topics. But I think lacking is your basic cognitive toolkit, your basic ability to think, your basic ability to learn. So one one thing that I recommend for everyone is just just doing a reflection on, you know, what are the different ways that you choose to make decisions? What are your approaches? What are your quote-unquote mental models? This isn't obviously a new term. Mental models have been talked about for years. Um, We talked about first principles thinking, we've talked about probabilistic thinking, we've talked about thought experiments. But I think they've been taught and talked to people, and I've said this before, in such a sophisticated, convoluted way, that it's scary for most people. It's intimidating. It's almost like, well, I'm just not smart enough to be able to think in this way, because I don't have all this context on physics and math. Yeah. The reality is you don't necessarily need all that context. And we've just over complicated uh, just ways of thinking. And that's, that's a beautiful place for most people to start. And that's really where I get excited about introducing people to mental models in an accessible way. And hopefully in the next couple of months, we'll have, we'll have a really fun uh, way to experience those things. But that, that I think should be emphasized is in addition to, yes, exploring topics and exploring categories, we must also explore the underlying mechanisms of learning and of thinking and of how we make decisions. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I just, uh, um, I'm part of a program for fund managers in New York. And obviously, since we can't be there uh, in, in person, we're having a lot of these Zoom sessions. And we just had um, a Zoom session on biases and how our own personal biases play into how we think about things and how we frame things and ultimately make decisions and how other people's biases, most of them unconscious, to be perfectly honest. I think most most of biases are um, not people are not even aware of them. Um, but how to recognize them in others um, and and how to maneuver around them. And it's, you know, it was it was it was it was very interesting because we don't usually question ourselves. Right. We take probably for the most part what we believe as inherently correct. We just don't, because that's who we are. Right. You know, if, if we didn't think it was it's correct. I want to point something out because it's so funny. We just contradicted ourselves and it's a beautiful contradiction <laughs> because we started our episode with, 
you know, we we constantly question ourselves <laughs> and our lack of connection, and we don't question external sources. And then the second part of it, which is also true, um, the beauty of everything we've talked about, is yeah, there's often times where we don't question ourselves yeah. and we just assume what we know to be true. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. I think it is, look, again, I think this is part of our all of our personal journeys, right? I I think the more we the more we be, the more we're comfortable, confident, aware, sufficiently aware enough to question ourselves, the more we question ourselves, right? And so I think we start, and this, this, I think the intention of that questioning changes, right? And in, in the first example, the questioning of ourselves came from this lack of confidence, this lack of self, this this presence of self doubt, versus the questioning we're talking about that we hope everyone develops is coming from a greater self-awareness, yes. from a greater, yes. hey, not everything I think is right, or hey, I believe this is right, and why? Just that coming from a different intention, so it serves you in your thought process is, is very different. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it, I think it's a very, I think that's a very astute point. Um, I, I would say there's one other area that I think is tied into this, that at least for me personally was, was kind of very influential in me getting much more comfortable about living a life that was self-directed rather than kind of externally directed and validated. And that was, I had to get to a point, um, and again, let me tell you, this, this is an ongoing struggle, where I stopped caring what other people thought. Um, and that sounds a little bit trite, and it sounds kind of childish, but I can tell you unequivocally that I struggle with it still uh, to, th- to this day, and significantly less than I did before. Um, but I think it's tied in, I think it's tied into a lot of things that we've been talking about. Uh, I grew up wanting to make my parents happy and what seemed to make them happy is what the world was telling me I should do and what would be defined as successful. Like that would bring them happiness. And then, and I really did genuinely want them to be happy. Um, and I think that that's paralyzing. I, I think that that concern about other, what other people are thinking. Um, and I, I think it can absolutely be, be, um, paralyzing because it it undermines your ability to think for yourself and to prioritize thinking for yourself and I don't think that that's a selfish thing I think that that's that ends up being quite healthy for everybody around you not not to not think about other people but to prioritize your kind of your your authentic self and and to have the confidence to believe in yourself um and so I was right I was I I like to think of it as if I can be my best self, then I can be the best self for other totally. people, right? I can totally. be better by that. Yes, completely. And 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 I believe that to be true. I, unequivocally, I believe that to be true. Um, but it was a fairly recent, for me, like I would say within the last 10 years that all of a sudden it occurred to me, um, wow, uh, I am really really in an unhealthy way directed towards making certain decisions about my life, pretty important decisions about my life and and my family's life uh, based on how, what I think other people will think. And the irony, Shireen, of all of this is 
Nobody was thinking about me. Nobody was ever like assessing my life or the decisions that I were making, like why I thought that I was so important, that I cared so much what other people think. The truth of the matter is the vast, vast majority of people that people are worrying about what they think are not for a moment thinking about you. So get over it. And I <laughs> I agree. And I also think that stems from how we are educated because for the longest time, it's your teacher is watching you, your college admissions totally. is watching you, everyone's judging you, you're, you know, everyone's watching your presentation. You must be perfect yes. and you must not show any vulnerability or any, any notion of doubt. Yeah. And that doubt, which by the way, can be so good, right? Doubt, yeah. like skepticism, mm-hmm. skepticism. But you must not show that. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's I mean, again, it's no, it's no coincidence that, you know, we're spending the first exposure we have to the world um, is when it comes to learning, right? It is in the education system. It starts so early now. I have friends who are early parents and you know, they've got one to two year olds, and uh those two year olds are in school. They're in school. They go and um so, you know, school is definitely a big influence in our lives for a very long time. And there's no coincidence that as adults, we look back and we realize so much of our habits and so much of the ways we do things are influenced by how we were taught and how we, uh, what environments we were around during our childhood. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of this is around this social compliance and, you know, and again, I would say, in whose benefit, to whose benefit is it when we all kind of socially comply and play by the rules? Um, there's a few people that really, really benefit from that in, in many ways. Um, and I, I understand from you know the perspective of social control and it's easier to control the masses. And by the way, it's not like I'm advocating utter chaos and let's just go out and right. do whatever we want. No, there, there is a basic framework that to successfully live in communities and organizations or companies or, you know, there, there's a basic framework that we need to all kind of agree that is it is best. But, um, you know, the healthiest organizations that I've worked in um, have been ones where uh, conflict is encouraged um, and it doesn't matter what level you are. No one, no one should care what level you are. Uh, you know, questioning status quo or, or questioning um, anybody is not seen as a negative thing uh, at all. In fact, it, it's, it is encouraged. And that is reframing that from the beginning. Right now, if I go into a lot of conversations and I question somebody, I'm seen as being aggressive or argumentative or controversial, you, you know, all of these things that have ne- negative connotations to them, when in fact, it's, it's actually should be quite complex complimentary because I'm really interested and I really want to understand. Right. I care enough. Yeah. Exactly. I care enough to dig deep, to ask, to to uh, expand, to learn together. Yeah, and I'm genuinely and- interested. I'm actually genuinely interested if I dig, 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 dig. Um, and yet again, I would say for the most part, society does not favor that. We really don't look that that highly upon bosses don't want to be questioned. They, they think that, you know, people under them that are questioning them are disrespectful or insolent or whatever it might be. Um, when in fact, you know, healthy leaders would encourage that and should encourage that because they're going to get better themselves. Right. I, it was interesting. Uh, when we were fundraising for Edbo, I caught myself in a trap of, um, memorization versus like, 
critical thought. And it came, it manifested itself in when we were preparing for our pitches. And this was, this was like very early days of Edvo. Um, We, you know, there was a lot of self-doubt. And when we were fundraising, I was memorizing, well, these are the common questions that VCs ask, and this is how you respond to them. And having been an you know, investor myself, I know exactly what those questions are and what intentions they come from. Mm-hmm. But even then, I got caught in the Q&A. Um, and then I realized I hated it. I was feeling, I felt like shit. I hated those conversations. I would dread those meetings. Totally. But then I took a minute back and I took a step back and I said, wait a minute, if I am talking to people who, you know, may or may not genuinely have an interest in the problem we're solving. So let's have a conversation. Let's dig deeper. If the questions they ask um, have to do with that, I I already know all the information. I know the answers. I don't need to memorize some templated response. Um, If I treat this as a very welcome discussion and not just a, A you know, obligation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. A pitch, an obligation of just getting some specific amount of information across for some random purpose and not anything outside of, hey, let's have a genuine discussion and see if this is something yeah. that we can collaborate on. Yeah, exactly. And and hopefully, you know, the investors that are kind of worth their salt, and let's face it, they're not all in that category, would welcome that, right? Because and they did, absolutely. Yeah, they're equally as interested in um, you know, kind of exploring this rather than anything being truly prescriptive and saying, okay, well, you know, what's your addressable market and what problem are you solving? You know, I mean, all like the, the ratcheted kind of typical questions. Um, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, um, it is interesting. I, and I think, you know, I mean, we should actually talk about kind of a lot of the stuff that we've, we've been discussing, um, in context of kind of this current crisis that we're going through. Uh, because yeah. I think that, there are, I've thought about you a lot. I was telling you earlier, you know, the area that you're in. And I think it is, you know, a lot of factors have come into play to bring this whole idea of our relationship with work, um, our relationship with education, uh, you know, into question, given where we are now, because we're, we're not only, we're not only physically changing our day-to-day of, of how we complete work, whatever that might be, or how we educate ourselves. I've got two kids that are both in online education right now. Um, you know, so we have kind of the physical component of it, but I think that, and, and maybe that's driving the psychological or mental component of it as well. But I, I think this gives us all an opportunity to really fundamentally question this paradigm of work and how we've done it in the past and what are those relationships and that structure, which is pretty archaic, right? If you think about the structure of, oh, you know, I punch the clock at nine and I punch the clock at five and I'm done. And, you know, I put in my hours and I have these breaks here and these breaks here and I've got my lunch hour. It's so crazy on so many levels. And that's probably another podcast. Um, but I do think right now is super interesting, um, and, and, you know, I'd love to hear, look, you're the expert at this. I would love to hear just your perspective on, on how, how do we, how has this affected, um, you know, this past six weeks, has it really affected all of us and how do we emerge and what's different and what's the same? I think one of the, it's, this is such an important topic and you're right. It's, it's such a long discussion, but one of the biggest things uh, that I see people questioning 
for the first time in a long time. And I, I believe this is cyclical. I believe past generations have done this as they've gone through their own set of crises. Um, people are questioning uh, as they're experiencing layoffs themselves or they're experiencing it within you know, close friends and family members. Um, it is almost impossible to not know at least one person that has been impacted by workforce reduction, right? Mm-hmm. And they're recognizing, well, hey, my livelihood is tied to my income in our current society. A lot of people are realizing, whoa, my livelihood, I have tied to my uh, to my title, to my company, mm-hmm. my identity. Is, you know, let's say um, I've worked at, I don't know, um, uh, Neutrogena for, you know, 10, 15 years. And that's my identity. And a lot of people are realizing, wow, at the end of the day, every job in the current, um, way that it's set up this employer employee relationship, every job is temporary. It's either you're going to one day choose to leave it or your company will choose to part it. Right. Well, everything is temporary. Then why would you tie your identity and your livelihood title or one source of income. And so I see a lot of people questioning, and if they're not questioning, you know, I propose this question of what, what does your livelihood mean to you? And how can you create an environment for yourself, a reality for yourself that doesn't give control to one specific company um, where overnight your livelihood can be taken away from Mm -hmm. you? How do you, Set yourself up to, let's say, you know, uh, in the context of just, you know, working, let's say in the employer-employee relationship, how can you set yourself up to have multiple sources of income where, you know, we talk about freelancing, we talk about contracting, but all of those things have connotations to them that aren't serving the majority. Mm -hmm. Uh, How can you rethink those relationships for yourself and navigate your lifestyle towards something that allows you to take control of your livelihood, to have have um, multiple things up in the air. Let's say, you know, one of my podcast um, guests said this beautifully, you're juggling. And so if you're juggling, let's say, projects with four different companies and one company says, sorry, we don't need you. No problem. You've got three totally. other opportunities yep. in your in your hands. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, look, I think we're moving towards, we have been moving towards this paradigm and uh, you and I are somewhat more exposed to this just because I think the sector that we, we work in. Um, But I, I completely agree. I, I think this whole idea of tying your identity and tying your livelihood to this to a job is crazy. And it's a vestige of a time long past, right? Like when I hear of, uh, you know, somebody that's been working at a company for, oh my goodness, anywhere longer than three years, probably at this point, not that it's a bad thing at all. It's mutually beneficial and it's working out and, and, and it's still great. Fantastic. But it's somewhat rare. And again, you know, we're, we're kind of in this early stage world where we see, we, we tend to see, a, you know, more fractional or contract or shorter term because the stages of the company can, can change so much. But I think we have to get out of this mindset of, you know, oh, well, anything, anything less than 12 months is, you know, kind of this ding on your resume. That's nonsense, right? That's just nonsense. nonsense. Somebody can, you know, I can work with somebody intensely for three months on an extraordinary initiative that's perfect for them. And they're the best 
Um, you know, they, they're the ones that are going to bring the best value. And after that, that initiative is done or it's executed or it becomes implemented. And, you know, that person's no longer interested. Why is that a negative thing? I would think that that's incredibly efficient um, for both sides. So I think the whole way, and it's, 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 it's both sides. It's, it's both the employees as well as employers, whether they're people or organizations, rethinking about how do we, I think there's two things. How do we um, rethink this, this paradigm? And I, I think there's a variety of answers. It's not one, 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 one shot fits all kind of thing. Um, how, how do we think about optimizing this for what we're trying to achieve. And then on the other side, I do think that if we can figure out how to create um, what we define as work, productivity, um, that that is that suits people's individual differences in their lives. <laughs> like, why are we not doing that for one thing? Like, that seems to me the most crazy of, so we somewhere along the line probably back because in the farming days when people had to get up at the crack of dawn and what have you, we define the work day as, I don't know, eight to five or whatever, however we define it, um, you know, with these, with these dictated kind of breaks. Um, doesn't, doesn't, yeah, it, goes back to, it goes back to identifying the intention, right? Identifying the intention behind why these paradigms were introduced mm-hmm. and going back to also following the money. It's it's the thought process is the same where just follow it to where it came from, right. follow it to the intention, follow it to the source. And um, you'll again, learn so much along the way. I know. And it's, by the way, it's not that it was necessarily bad when it was created, when a lot no. of these were created, they were probably super smart and appropriate for the time being, but, but my goodness, they feel antiquated at this point. I mean, I, I, we don't all, we're not all productive, equally productive at the same times of the day. We, we all need different levels of activity versus sit down. We might be mentally more on the game at five in the morning and not at 11 at night and vice versa for certain people, right? Like we're just all very different. Um, and so I think that, I think the whole paradigm of work is, is really quite outdated. Now, look, it's easy to be an armchair critic. I can sit here and say, yes, you know, this could be better. This could be better. What is the answer? I'm not sure, but I'm certainly open to figuring it out. Right. And, um, you know, whether that's on a one-on-one basis or supporting companies that are rethinking this, this whole relationship. Um, because I do think, you know, going back to it, at, at the gender side of things, I do not think we have done a good job of figuring out how to keep uh, women um, doing what they want to do and being productive um, while still expecting them to, uh, if they have kids, be the primary caregivers. And they still are expected to be the primary caregivers. Um, so I, I think overall figuring out how work um, you know, works for, for both sides, uh, but also on an individual level, for people's individual differences in 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 what they deem important in their life, and who am I who am I to judge what people deem important? I don't care. Absolutely, and I'm not in. I'm not interested in telling anyone what to do, no. but I am super interested in helping you question and figure it out for yourself. Right? Yes, I'm. I and I think that's that's what it comes down to. Going back to you know not having answers to the questions we're proposing, it's because 
there, these are complex questions with complex and many different answers that are not one size fits all. And it's, it's, you know, I've taken the pressure off of myself of knowing the answers. I used to, similar to you, feel a lot of pressure of knowing what I'm saying, especially as a female CEO, especially mm-hmm. as an early stage founder. I felt this immense responsibility of constantly giving my team the exact direction to go in, where I was stifling my own growth right. and my own curiosity. And so now I've said, look, I will take full accountability over learning and growing and surrounding myself with a variety of perspectives so that I can directionally be accurate or at least just be open to experimenting and testing. But I no longer say I have all the answers and we're going to figure them out right on a podcast. But what we will do is allow for conversation to exist and allow for perspectives to be shared and engage in uh, a discussion that's coming from you know, in the right intentions. Um, and that intention being, again, just focused on learning and developing our perspectives um, and taking actions whenever appropriate, for sure. We do need to not think about, just think and talk, right? We have to do as well. Um, but it starts with bringing more people into the conversation and totally. collaborating and experimenting and figuring out what sticks and what doesn't yeah, stick. Yeah, I think I think your point about bringing different people in the conversation. I mean, we definitely live in a society where very, 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 very few set the rules. Generally, if you look at almost all aspects of of our life, um, that's a problem. You know, that's, that's a problem. As you know, um, Amanda and I, you know, we're, we've launched uh, this fund. And so we've gone through the last eight weeks, we've gone through a very interesting fundraising session. And, you know, the more I learned about it, um, 98%, 98% of the world's global assets are allocated by white men. Now, if you believe, as I do, that capital is power and not not necessarily power in a bad way, you could you could call it influence, but it capital directs um, where resources uh, are going to be available. It directs where R&D is going to happen. It directs where innovation is going to happen. It directs where production is going to happen. So, you know, it's hard to argue that capital is power. And if we have 98% of the global assets being allocated, controlled, whatever you want to call it, by white men, we have built a world essentially that reflects a very, very small portion of the the people in this world. That's a that's right. a problem, right? Like that. Yeah, and I want to add: capital is money. Capital is also the common language, mm-hmm. right? And so it's going back to bringing people to discuss. If capital is that common language. You're, you know, if you've got it, you're participating in more discussions. You're incentivizing, frankly, more discussions as mm-hmm. well. Um, and I am tired of, there are so many rooms I'm not in already, right, as a woman, <laughs> speaking from women. But I also, I remember walking into one of our portfolio companies uh, that we invested in. And Deborah, I, and I know you've experienced this so many times, but I walk in, it's one of the, you know, top sexiest companies, blah, 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 in LA. We walk in, into their office and into their boardroom and I, I'm at the door and someone's like, oh, can I help you with something? And a man walks past me in a suit and they're like, oh, by the way, you must be here for blah, blah, blah. Please you know, go to the boardroom. Still talking to me like, what are you here for? I'm not thinking that I could be here for the same board meeting. 
Um, and we walk into the morning and lo and behold, I'm the youngest person there and I'm the only woman and I don't have a seat to sit on. <laughs> and it is absurd. And of course my partner, you know, Ray, like he, he was there and he obviously, you know, was hyper observant and the best ally ever. Um, you know, he, he has to though introduce me and help me claim that space. Yeah, and give you credibility, someone, right? Like he, he has to give credibility. credibility. Yeah, exactly. And since you know me and you've met me, I have no problem claiming my space. <laughs> and I am proud and I am, you know, I have been blessed with quite a quite a voice. <laughs> uh, but in that room, I remember feeling so small. Yeah, yeah. And it is, that's, that is just wrong. Um, and it also does not allow you to, uh, have the conversations that you, like I naturally would as a woman, as a person of color, when I am in a room full of people that don't even, that aren't even familiar with those perspectives that might be open to talking about them, but they aren't oh, familiar with no, those perspectives. Absolutely. And by the way, it's, it's never forget that it's to somebody's benefit that you feel small. It is, it is to probably everybody else, you know, I mean, there's this always this jockeying, weird jockeying um, of power when you enter into those rooms. And it seems to me that everybody thinks of it as kind of like a, a, this net zero sum game where uh, I need to, I need to remove credibility or power or visibility or, or, you know, or any of the, many of these variables to make somebody feel less than, because then I'll feel, I go up in the spectrum of things. Again, antiquated, outdated paradigm that is not functional or healthy at all. And completely undermining the value of like voice amplification, yes. right? If you truly have something that can get people excited, your job should be, okay, let's get people excited and let's have a conversation around it. Not let's stifle their voice. So our voice is the only one heard, man. If you really have something freaking beautiful, people will join you. And if people join you, that voice, that, that voice increases, you've empowered another voice, you've empowered yourself. There's so much beauty, so much beauty in that aggressive collaboration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness, my friend, we could talk about this forever. I am so glad that you were here. I'm so glad we got to do this, Deborah. Tell our listeners how they can follow your journey, what you're up to and where they can reach you. Yes, definitely. So um, I alluded to earlier, I have a partner, uh, Amanda. Amanda and I launched, uh, professionally, we launched a an early stage um, consumer growth fund where we invest at the earliest institutional stage in companies, um, primarily around, I would say, personal care, health and wellness, um, all aspects of health and wellness, um, beauty, skincare, uh, sustainable apparel and accessories. Those are areas that we really, really like. Um, so I've been investing for the past six years, uh, as has uh, Amanda. We've come together to do this now. Um, so we have um, our website, willowgrowth.com. You can hop on to my LinkedIn. Deborah Benton uh, is probably the best way to follow me from a professional perspective. Um, and, you know, please feel free to reach out uh, through my email, Deborah at willowgrowth.com. 
Thank you so much, Deborah. It's been awesome having you. Oh, thank you, my friend. Uh, it's been an honor, and I could discuss this stuff every day. Uh, it's it's really very interesting, and I love the work that you're doing. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting kind of inflection point at this point to see how things evolve. And I'm an ultimate optimist. I, I think we're headed in the right direction. I do too. I do too. And uh, we'll definitely have you back and we'll have more of these conversations, even obviously off this podcast. Uh, Thank you. Thank you.